Episode 251, Preventing Readmissions and Improving Patient Outcomes with Telehealth and Other Digital Tools. Today, I speak with Dr. Kimberly Noel from Stony Brook Medicine. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There are four pillars that contribute to readmissions. Ensuring patients are equipped to self-manage and properly take their medications. Follow-up, usually by PCPs. Managing transitions of care and care coordination, which might be known as interoperability. Plus, avoiding medical errors. Dr. Kim Noel and I discuss each of these pillars and how telehealth and other digital tools can close gaps and help patients do what they need to do to stay out of the hospital. Dr. Noel is a clinical researcher, physician, and telehealth specialist. She is an appointee to the New York State Department of Health Regulatory Modernization Initiative Telehealth Advisory Committee. That is a mouthful and serves as the Director of Stony Brook Medicine, Telehealth, and the Deputy Chief Medical Information Officer there as well. Dr. Noel will be speaking at the Digital Medicine Conference sponsored by Node Health in New York City coming up in early December. So if you are intrigued by what you hear here, then definitely consider coming. By the way, NODE stands for Network of Digital Evidence, and I will also be at the Digital Medicine Conference in early December. So if you will be attending too, please definitely let me know. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Kim Noel, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Kim, you are responsible for synergizing digital solutions and telehealth to improve quality. And, you know, I'm assuming by the same token, that would lead to reduced readmissions. You've identified medical error as one of the categories of why do patients get readmitted? Are there others you want to mention right now so that when we start talking about the solutions that you've come up with, or that you're working on or looking into, we can organize them relative to what barriers or what the reasons are for readmission that these solve. Yeah. So I think when the science of readmissions reduction focuses on kind of four basic tenets, actually, it's the work of Eric Coleman that really has defined care transitions in regards to readmission. And that one is that if the patient's medications are well-managed, and a patient's self-management of those medications are effective, then you can reduce risk. Similarly, if you make sure that the patient has good follow-up, then they will be able to get that counseling regarding medications and also proper treatment at the right time. And that patients really know about their condition in terms of identifying red flags and symptoms that are concerning. And then lastly, there's a call for interoperability, making sure that patients have access to the right data about their condition when they need it. And so those are the core things that make it just beyond error, frank error, which, you know, clinicians should hold themselves to the highest level to ensure that that is minimized. It's also about how are we delivering care overall that's patient-centered in a way that ensures really great connectivity and access to care. 
Got it. Okay. We've got making sure that medications are well-managed reduces the risk of rehospitalization. We've also got an improved quality, obviously. We've got the patient has good follow-up. The patient knows what the red flags are, like i.e. if this happens, call someone ASAP. Interoperability amongst care settings, I'm assuming, and then reducing medical error overall. Yeah. So that's the four pillars plus don't make mistakes that you can prevent. (laughs) All right. So here's the, I was going to say the million dollar question, but like add some zeros to that. How do you solve for this? How do you actually start to think about synergizing digital solutions and telehealth to overcome these challenges and provide that patient-centered care? I think that one is better understanding the problem. I think that that's always starts, you know, always start with a needs assessment. And I think overcoming certain myths. What I'm reassured by in the published literature is that patients 65 and above can actually show dramatic improvements through transitions of care coaching and better patient self-management. And I think we're in an era now where the patient is at the nucleus of these changes we're trying to make, whether that be because they are now active consumers, you know, they're new players in healthcare in which they have choice or a more engaged aging population. But there's an idea that this frail person doesn't need to be second party to the decisions of how they deliver care. And in fact, if you really want to have an impact, they have to be at the forefront of their own care. And you see this manifested in a lot of the healthcare policy and current debates around healthcare, which is helpful. I would like to add on to that in that these patients are also ready to adopt technologies. And I think this notion that because of age, people are not able to benefit from sensors or mobile technologies is actually false. When in proper coordination and education and support, you are able to provide greater access using digital health than ever before. The other part of the conversation that's really important is looking at the digital solutions themselves. Once you have an understanding of the need for patient-centered care, the second part of the task is to give the proper tools for that self-management. And that's important for, it's really a call for collaboration for several stakeholders, right? We need, obviously, the hospital systems because they're at the point of discharge, but you need the ambulatory and community providers and community resources to help support patients but also the opportunity for technology in helping optimize care delivery to reduce errors. And some of the problems that we have in healthcare are not unique to healthcare. They've been solved in banking and in in the commercial space, and we can learn from that. And particularly when it comes to design thinking and, and creating optimal workflows, we need experts in that space as well to work collaboratively to find solutions for the readmissions problem using innovative solutions. Got it. Okay. So we've got a list of three things on it. If we're talking about how do we begin to synergize and apply digital solutions to solve for some of the known issues. And you began with better understanding what the problem is. I'm inferring from what you're saying that we tend perhaps to leap to conclusions that it it would be far better to just take three steps back and really prove out exactly and specifically what that problem is. Because Albert Einstein was quoted as saying, 
someone asked, if you had 60 minutes to save the universe, what would you do? And he said, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute looking for a solution. It sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing. I do. And that there's certain interventions that have so many benefits. I had ran a randomized control trial with the endpoint of reducing readmissions in which we were provided telehealth video visits every week. We followed patients also with remote patient monitoring and evaluated their blood pressure and oxygen level and heart rate and weight. And what's interesting is, you know, why did we see that benefit? It's really hard to tease apart as to was it the emotional connection of feeling valued? Was there a psychological engagement that was really important? Can you achieve that over phone? Or was it really the nature of video itself that was important? Was it just dedicated physician time going through and making sure that errors were prevented? And could that be facilitated through an in-person visit or another modality? And or, you know, was the education that we gave patients regarding the variables we were measuring, which was like blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen, these are just normal things that patients should understand about their bodies. You know, what is a normal blood pressure? What is a normal heart rate? And then preparing them in advance of what to do if ever there is a case where that's not normal. Like these shouldn't be secrets that we only give to certain patients when they're hospitalized and things have gone southward. We can do a lot more in education and prevention before. Where the science really gets detailed is what is the most effective means of engaging patients and getting the desired outcome. And so I think you have two factors to consider. One, which is that An intervention can have many benefits that have ambiguous correlations, right, that really in the end don't matter because it has a positive outcome. And then the other factor, which is that working from multiple perspectives on a similar problem can give different solutions that as we learn about more and more about the science of how people behave, how how to trigger certain lifestyle changes will be able to be more prescriptive. Understood. It really reminds me of what they always say about marketing. You know, 50% of marketing works. You just don't know which 50%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it sounds similar that the objective is to understand, realizing that everything has a context. So the object would be to create a positive context and all of the things that need to go into that context as opposed to finding the one thing that will save the world. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I I think that it's important to understand that, you know, traditionally, the way that medical research is conducted focuses on a variable, a defined endpoint, trying to identify specifics, right? Like if you think about a disease process, we isolate down to the microbe or try to genotype a virus or other aspects of what causes disease. But in this case, when it's just more fuzzy because of the nature of human behavior, we really need to rely on other fields to find that innovation. And I think what you're describing is exactly effective, is that if, if marketing is able to lead to desired behaviors, which is purchasing an item. Can we learn from that in medicine to encourage health behaviors? Our first item on our list here toward finding solutions to improve the quality of healthcare and reduce readmissions by the same token is really understanding what the problem is, learning from other industries, but spending a bunch of time contemplating what our assumptions are. The second thing that you mentioned was overcoming certain myths. I think is how you put it, and realizing that they are, in fact, myths. And the example that you gave was that older folks cannot 
use technology or older folks can't self-manage and there's not necessarily a, a good reason to educate them or give them information because they're not going to know what to do with it. Did I, first of all, represent that, right? Sure. So I think the notion that just by age alone, you know, you can predict who will like a technology or not or who can follow in a telehealth program or, or use things like sensors is wrong. We know that there are so many differences in proficiencies that age alone doesn't define. And now we have a whole generation of people who are aging with the iPhone and having that exposure of social media and the benefits of machine learning, for example, in their emails. And they may not understand all of the nuances, but, you know, you do have grandmas using Facebook and older individuals using Twitter. So I think the idea that the aging population is not amenable to telehealth is a huge disservice. I feel as though those who physically cannot follow prompts or who have cognitive issues or disability issues are the ones we should be protecting most and monitoring most using this technology. So that advocacy for being able to get into the home to make sure they get the best access to specialty care or routine care is important. And so no matter how, what factor of whether you have an aging population that is technologically savvy and very independent or pockets of populations that are more vulnerable, it's not a quick solution to say telehealth is not for them. In fact, we should be advocating of how do we innovate in medicine that we can augment the power of telehealth and digital solutions to serve those patients because they can be left behind. It sounds like what you're advocating, that the normal demographic criteria is not sufficient. It's not going to be a direct overlap between demographics, like age, and who can use telehealth and benefit from it. There's a whole other analysis that needs to be done. It's not as simple as just saying if someone's a certain age, they're not going to be able to do this. There's other factors. Yeah. And I think that the center of that is a patient's self-concept and behavior. So when we think about readmission reduction, it's as I mentioned, it's not about reversing the disease pathology necessarily, although that is great. I do believe in prevention. It's mostly that we are able to help patients navigate their disease and optimize the use of technology for better outcomes. And are you advocating for technology because it's ubiquitous, it's a fact of life, it's scalable, and other industries have used it well in these regards? So you've got case studies in other industries which strongly suggest that a solution like telehealth or some of these other digital tools are, in fact, the way to go, as opposed to doing something manually somehow or another. Yeah, and I think um, the importance is understanding this, kind of, what do they say, the fourth industrial revolution, which also incorporates the power of machine learning and AI. You're going to have a bigger divide between those who are able to use state-of-the-art innovations in computing and technologies and then those who are left behind. And I think that reality of true disparity is concerning in healthcare, and we can't really afford for that to happen. I think that we are already experiencing the problems with the disparity of patients experiencing really optimal consumer capabilities, making sure that you can get whatever you desire on Amazon the next day delivery, sometimes same day delivery. But yet for your medications, you may have delays or for making a doctor's appointment, it may be really challenging. We now see the patient's 
aligning themselves with this consumer-based approach in that there is a growing demand to be able to access healthcare as they do other things in their lives, conveniently, on demand, and with high accuracy and, and little tolerance for error. We talked about the first two things, which is understanding the problem better and then overcoming myths, you know, like actually doing the research to understand what types of the demographics and psychographics of the patients that we're working with and their ability to adopt some of these solutions. So we get down to the third thing now, which is the solutions themselves. Do you happen to have any examples or case studies of how you may have navigated the problem to finding the right patients to figuring out what the correct digital solution might be in order to actually improve and synergize around the quality and reduced readmissions? Yeah, I think that's really the million-dollar question or billion-dollar question. Maybe a trillion. Really, yeah, maybe a trillion dollars, depending on projections. But that's really important because we look at risk stratification as a central part of this, right? You know, who's going to be at risk of being readmitted? Again, it goes back, I'm, I'm not trying to skirt the question, but it's going back towards what I had said about doing the proper needs assessment. Because you can build a risk model to determine what are the factors most predictive of readmissions or poor outcomes. And I've done this at Stony Brook. I work with the biomedical informatics department. We used machine learning on electronic medical record data to find what are the factors most contributory towards readmission. And there is a great deal of effort, resources, and funding that went after in trying to, to create a risk score in the electronic medical record to help doctors understand this is a person who's a high risk, this person needs extra attention. But the ability to use that at point of care has to be tailored. And I think what makes this so hard is that you have this ambiguous human behavior that is a variable that is difficult to quantify. And the more studies we do, the more we'll understand how human behavior is linked to outcome. But the science is still very unclear. This is also important in terms of new digital solutions need to be in peer-reviewed journals. They need to be published because that's how medical systems adopt change through this peer-reviewed process. And so I think we have to be able to look at uh, readmission risk tools or risk tools in general using AI and we also have to look at innovative strategies and how to respond to those tools. And those are two different sciences. You had suggested that you can build models using AI and determine, based on the patient information, which patients are going to be at highest risk of returning to the hospital vis-a-vis -a, -vis a readmission then you had said that it would be really important. I mean, information that's not actionable is kind of just noise. You, you know, like you've got this information and if nobody's using it, what, what value is it? So then the trick becomes, how do you actually include this in the clinical workflow or at the point of care? Do you have any learnings? Like, is this something that should happen in discharge planning with the case manager? Is this something that should happen, you know, the last time the physician walks in and checks the patient? Like, when is it best to do this stuff or do different things? Should different things happen in different places? I think the clear answer is all of the above. But besides that being overly simplistic, we're in an interesting time where we're empowering patients themselves to be 
the guardian of their medical record and advocate for themselves. And I think that that's, you know, that might be threatening to some in the medical community because of the traditional hierarchical structure of the doctor-patient relationship. But I think that's there's promise in that, in forming a true partnership. And when you have a patient empowered with access to data and accurate resources, they can do a really good job taking care of themselves. Where we as a medical system can improve is by reducing the amount of inefficiencies and errors that may harm a patient and forming strong collaborations with outside resources that can help a patient navigate through their chronic illness. So I think the answer is all of the above, focusing on the importance of those public-private partnerships, those synergies, the areas in which we can amplify the individual efforts that are, for example, coordinated on reducing readmissions. Have you done anything over at Stony Brook which has significantly improved quality and reduced readmissions to some extent? Yeah. So um, at Stony Brook, we ran a randomized controlled trial, which is the Stony Brook Telehealth trial, in which we had, it was a, a small study that looked at patients from the family medicine and internal medicine ambulatory departments who are hospitalized at Stony Brook. And we gave each patient a telehealth kit. They went home with a blood pressure cuff, a pulse oximeter, and a scale, as well as an iPad. And we were able to do these telehealth visits and remote patient monitoring daily. And I think what was really fascinating is one clear demonstration of feasibility, which is that Doctors don't have to be afraid of the data that comes in from daily monitoring. There's actually a way we created a clinical workflow that could be amenable for systems like our own with the resident trainees and that we could really put the focus, the efforts back on the patient and really optimize their self-management. We unfortunately were underpowered in showing a true readmission reduction, but overall, the, because the readmissions that we actually had in the trial needed proper critical care in, in those cases. We had a patient who had an acute airway and a patient who suffered a stroke. These are not things that you want to manage through video. But we did see statistically significant improvements in patients' self-management and definitely in their attitudes towards the technology. And we showed that patients, even at a, you know an older demographic, were able to participate and get value from telehealth. What do you want other providers who, you know, maybe executives or physicians at other healthcare organizations, what could they learn from what you have done? One, that telehealth is feasible. You know, the notion that you need to buy really expensive software packages and need, you know, all the bells and whistles is not necessarily true. Uh, with rudimentary equipment, you can get the job done. And a lot of resource needs to be spent on the patient education, coaching, and support for your clinicians. Two, I mean, ideally, I also would love, you know, see the value in updating those technologies that we did use. And there are really state-of-the-art technologies now that allow for store and forwarding of of health data that's really important, like heart sounds and, and full physical exams even, that can be very useful when engaging with specialists. So I think that there is definitely a role for updating the technology, but it doesn't have to be the end-all be-all for starting rolling out telehealth programs. The other thing is really optimizing physicians' time in the right way, that we don't have to have the fear of data fatigue if the design of the clinical workflow is thought out and if you have proper engagement of physicians in this process. I think one thing that we should fear is that if physicians are not engaged and we just buy a platform, telehealth platform, for example, we will see very little return on investment because at the end, the point of care and where the patient sits 
is still maintained, managed, and optimized by the clinicians themselves. So I think you do need participation of the medical community. You can't just have the tech giants figure it out alone. I do think that we have to focus on the patient-centered approach because it works. Patients themselves improve their outcomes with self-efficacy. That is published and known. The real question at the end is, how do we best engage and optimize that self-efficacy? And how do we support patients in times of need? And that needs to be a question that everyone in our society is engaged in finding solutions for. So it sounds like, number one, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, mm-hmm. like you don't have to find the absolute quintessential, awesome, most excellent everything that there's the opportunity for incremental improvements here. And if we just start to, number one, really investigate the problem thoroughly, find the areas that perhaps are the most ripe for improvement, and then just work on what's the minimum viable product, as they say, in order to improve it, that we can achieve results without necessarily completely blowing up the whole system and starting all over again. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, a last factor that I want to put out there is that Stony Brook Medicine, we've in the Renaissance School of Medicine, we have focused on incorporating telehealth into the medical education. And we have expanded that to training residents and creating formal education for physicians with specific focus on, you know, what we call this website manner and and the digital presentation of, of medicine. And this is key because the mastery of being able to use technology is not just self-evident. You know, there are people who will better excel than others and they need to be given the right tools to do a stellar job. And that's both in being exposed to the technologies themselves, whether that be the new state-of-the-art wearable or, or a health device. The other fold is really improving on that patient engagement through communication and having a warm digital presence which means, you know, timely, convenient and accessible care, but also that human touch. That is the art of medicine that needs to be updated for the digital time. I love that website manner. But it also sounds like, you know, and this kind of harkens back to some things that you talked about earlier about enabling and educating the patient to self-manage. There was some pretty stark statistic I've read recently about the number of patients who leave a care setting who do not have any documentation of a care plan. You know, like they leave and they kind of don't know even what they're supposed to be doing. So it sounds like um, this is kind of a combination of making sure that, to your exact point, the art of practicing medicine, there's definitely there's best practices for everything. And there's certainly, I'm sure, as you're saying, best practices for transferring from an in-person visit to a website visit, number one. But then number two, making sure that the clinicians have the resources and education that they might need to provide the patient with the tools that the patient needs to self-manage in the way that the patient wants to, i.e. in a patient-centered way. Well put. (laughs) Um, If you were going to give some quick advice to vendors who might be walking in with some sort of digital solution that they hope a health system will deploy to improve quality, improve outcomes or reduce readmissions. Do you have any sort of feedback or help that might assist them in not only selling the product in, but also getting results? Definitely. I think this is an area that is important to me because I like to interface with those in industry. I think innovation comes through collaboration. And I've learned a lot from both successful 
and I guess what to do and what not to do in regards to vendor relations that end up being effective. And I, I think one is that there's a disconnect between vendors and healthcare providers and or administrators in understanding the complexity of bureaucracies, right? And so I think vendors need to understand that what type of healthcare system they're engaging is completely different. Just because we're all in healthcare doesn't mean that we have common abilities and or capacities. Knowing whether it's a public or state institution such as Stony Brook or a private hospital system or rather an independent group very much dictates the laxity and and ease at which new innovations can happen. And being short-sighted as to or undereducated regarding the regulatory and other challenges is is a problem, you know, because it, we can't just try it because it's a great idea. You know, there are several other factors to consider when in, implementing a change. And uh, the second part is understanding who makes the decision, right? So I, I often open my email inbox and I'll get tons of messages regarding something vaguely related to IT or security that is not at all in my control. And so therefore, there's very little communication or value generated from that outreach because it's just clearly not the right person. And so creating invested relationships to understand the stakeholder always leads to better results. Understanding where the money comes from. You know, in healthcare, there's very different sources, whether if it's a grant-funded source versus a direct executive budget that is allocated for the project. These makes big differences as to, again, the level of independence one can have. So I think one misconception with vendors is that you can convince someone to adopt a technology based on it being a good idea. And I think what we're we're seeing is that due to the complex nature of healthcare, you need to have more invested teams who better understand the true challenges of implementation, working together over time to get the right stakeholders engaged for the right solution, subject to the right regulatory oversight, et cetera. Kim, is there anything I neglected to ask you? I believe that this is a really important time in healthcare to be asking about how technology can help us create better experiences for patients and ultimately reduce the waste and inefficiencies that nobody likes to experience. And so I think, you know, talking about readmissions is one part of the story and an important one. And I welcome, you know, any further questions regarding this topic that I think is is important. You will be speaking on December 9th at the Digital Medicine Conference in New York City sponsored by Node Health. Is there anything in particular that you are looking forward to happening there? Yeah, I love the Node community because I'm constantly meeting innovators, leaders, and stakeholders that have really delved into and experienced the power of bringing change in the healthcare system. And so I think I always get new ideas. It's always a great network of thought leaders, and I'm excited to to be part. Dr. Kim Noel, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, 
the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.